Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Thank you for joining us for another exciting episode in our Biotech Decoded podcast series. I'm Yaron Warber, Biotech Analyst at Cowan. Uh, it's really a great pleasure today to be joined by Ann Daub and Isai Pymeyer in this episode called Investor Relations, Best Practices, and Faux Pas to discuss what to do, and maybe more importantly, what not to do from an investor relations standpoint. Ann Daub joined Tiro Price Associates as a biotechnology analyst in 2018 and has more than a decade of experience investing in biotech stocks. She started her career in investment banking at JP Morgan in debt restructuring and healthcare investment banking. Isai Pymeyer is a biotech analyst at Cervera Capital Citadel, where he focuses on public and private investing in biotech. From 2010 to 2016, Isai served as managing director at Medimmune Ventures, which, uh, as you know, is AstraZeneca's investment fund. Isai was also an investment banker at JP Morgan and a specialty pharmaceuticals analyst at Alliance Bernstein. Prior to Wall Street, Isai was a management consultant in life sciences and began his career as a scientist at Merck. Anne and Isai, it's so great to see you and thank you so much for joining us. I have to say that this podcast specifically, I'm, I'm very excited about. It's not to say that I'm not excited about the other ones, but this is sort of a project of passion for me, You know, having been like you on Wall Street for a long time. Personally, I spent about three to four years in a company, so I have a little bit of a a view of what happens inside a company. And then obviously Wall Street, this is investor relations is such an important topic and what to do and what not to do. And you both have such, you know, really great backgrounds. Isai, you have a great background in VC and public and private investing. You have board experience. And if I remember correctly, and correctly if I'm wrong, I think your fund was one of the biggest investor in private companies over the last two or three years. Yes, we, we started the... Uh, deploying capital into private companies uh, at Citadel, uh, perhaps uh, four years ago or so, uh, and have been, you know, very active. It's a way for us to build, uh, you know, uh, a real position given the size of our fund. Uh, so we kind of go upstream uh, and looking forward to uh, build a bigger position uh, once these companies kind of go public and try to be helpful to them along the way. Yeah. So you see what happens literally from Series A, you know, Series B onwards to you know five years on the public market. And then you have such a great knowledge base and industry experience that, you know, was such a great vantage point at Tiro, and you, you're both complementing each other so well. So, you know, we all know the biotech markets have been under a lot of pressure. You know, that's a, uh, <laughs> an understatement. Companies are struggling to get noticed. You can argue that's not new, but there's, you know, over 600 companies now. Uh, we estimated, Cowan, that 35% of companies are going to need to raise capital in the next 18 months. And that's a, you know, that's a, that's a tough, tough hurdle to get through. And we're, we're getting questions, and I know like you do, from boards, CEOs, CFOs, IR companies, heads of IR, about how companies should conduct uh, and approach investor relations. How much should they do? How little should they do? What should they do? Maybe, Anne, let's start with you. What advice would you give someone in a company? What, what's the best practices IR-wise? Thanks for having us, Yaron. Uh, so, I mean, I would say that there's a background level of communication that should be as efficient as possible. So, you know, quarterly calls for companies at a certain stage, certainly late clinical companies, 
uh, and absolutely commercial stage companies. And, you know, one thing that I find uh, extremely efficient in terms of communication is participation in Southside conference fireside chats, as opposed to canned presentations, right? Because the canned presentations are on the website. And the reason why I love the fireside, uh, fireside chat format is because they're very efficient, right? Because you get transcripts on, on Bloomberg and FactSet. Um, the audience is, is broad and the questions are, you know, they come from somebody who's sophisticated and they're very topical questions, right? Like the, the topics du jour. Um, what is too much or unnecessary, right? I mean, I'm all for investor days, but make sure they convey a very clear message. And it's not a data dump on topics um, of various levels of relevance to the stock, right? Like you don't want a page with 30 programs um, on, on your screen or with acronyms, you, you know, like an alphabet soup, right? You basically, an investor day should be, um, should answer three questions, right? Like, what have you achieved? Where are you? And where are you going to be in three to five years? And I think that a lot of times, you know, that it's kind of like we're doing this and that, but you're not telling me where you want to be. And, you know, there are companies that do that very well. You know, Anilum is one of those, right? Where they, they tell you what they've done, where they are and where they want to be in a few years. Great. So, so lots of advice there. Isai, what do you think? You know, it, it's it's really uh, impressive to think about how many companies are, you know, in the last uh, five years uh, have gone public and are now you know, publicly traded. Uh, there's just so many companies, you know, it, it's really hard to, uh, for, for companies to get noticed. And added to that, you know, just looked at the last couple of years, uh, about 80% of the new IPOs have been, uh, you know, preclinical companies or, or companies uh, ahead of their clinical proof of concept, you know. Nobody really needs to own these companies uh, right now, so it's it's kind of tough going, especially because XBI is you know underperforming you know uh, other indices uh, and, and benchmarks. So I think you know the the thing that I um, find works uh, best is uh, if the management team can really demonstrate uh, their competency, become thought partners, you know, about the technology that they have or uh, particular, you know, uh, indication. Those are the kinds of teams I want to interact with more frequently because uh, it's not just about their programs. It's also about their point of view on the competitive landscape uh, and, uh, you know, other advances in the field. Uh, so those uh, teams who can demonstrate, you know, competency and, and become sort of uh, KOLs slash, you know, thought partners are the most valuable ones to kind of track and, and uh, build a relationship with them. And, and the companies really do need to uh, build these relationships, you know, uh, sometime before they need to raise capital. And all of these companies, you know, should they have success, they'll need to raise even more capital. So it, it kind of pays to take uh, that approach, I think. Um, I find the uh, uh, management team members at uh, scientific forums and medical conferences, uh, and I really enjoy uh, catching up with them, uh, and not not only about their programs, but also getting point of view uh, from them about what's going on in the space. That that includes, uh, you know, the supply chain, the FDA, um, uh, and other things uh, that are maybe less obvious. Okay, great. So a lot of a lot of um, you know insights there, and you know one of the things that we see. You know, I can imagine there's a lot of pressure within the company to get attention. I remember being in a, you know, private to public company, you know, when the stock is under pressure, there's a lot of pressure to kind of reach out to Wall Street. And a lot of times we see companies are constantly trying to reach out to us. Anything happens, anything from their competitors happens. And a lot of these are, you know, fairly small 
pieces of information, but they want to, they want to do a conference call. They want to book an hour. They want to book 45 minutes with all their management. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, honestly, look, we're, we're here for you and you have, we have plenty of time to give you, but in reality, it's not going to be a super productive call. We honestly don't need the time. And your time is extremely valuable. You know, three or four people spending a half hour with us, it's two hours and God knows how many calls they're going to do like that. So to me, that's not, you know, really super helpful. Just having a touch point for the sake of having a touch point is not productive, you know, just given how, how busy we all are. So, and to your point, you mentioned the companies that need to do conference calls are commercial companies and, and late stage companies. Does every commercial company need to do a conference call? Um, do they always need to do conference call and for earnings? I mean, and does every late stage company needs to do a conference call? So I think that the bias uh, in the public market, uh, it's, it's, you know, broad strokes, right? But it's long the stock into you know, clinical regulatory events and then short the stock into the commercial launch, uh, except for rare exceptions, right? And so over communicating on, um, especially in the context of a launch, always pays. But, you know, there's, but, but, but a lot of companies don't do it well, right? So they, they'll give you metrics such as number of doctor touch points, lives covered by managed care. Like, I don't care, right? Like, what matters is formula replacement, um, net pricing, drug compliance, um, you know, tiering, right? Like all, all these things, anything that helps us model things. And also these, these early calls are really important when it comes to, um, uh, you know, making sure that expectations are carefully managed. So there's communications with the street, with the buy side. And then there's, there's also another form of communication, which is communicate with your sell siders, like constantly reevaluate consensus where numbers are and, and, and 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 work on this because the work you invest upfront in making sure that numbers are achievable, beatable, will will pay off a lot, as, especially in terms of your time management. Because if you have a launch that doesn't go well and numbers get cut repeatedly, you're going to spend months of your life, you know, addressing this, and you'll 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 end up looking defensive and incompetent. So I think these two channels of communications are really important. Now, with respect to late, late clinical. You know, like maybe not, but when you have a big set of data, right, even if it's early data, put it in context, right? Because a lot of uh, the other thing that is very troublesome is, you know, you see early data in cancer and it's like five patients and you have three responses. They'll be like, oh, we have a 60% response rate. No, there's, there's, um, there's like the, the decision to put data out. So very important, right? Like we don't want to see, we're not going to calculate a resist response rate on six patients. We want a lot more patients and your first data is often your best data and then it falls off a cliff because of you know initial bias in Rome. So there's something they need to be very judicious about not only communication with the buy side and typically with the sell side, but also when to give data. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And Isai, what what do you, what do you think? Should, should companies do earnings calls, and when when should they do earnings calls? No, I think that companies should aspire to engage uh, in high yield, substantive interactions with 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 investors. And so, unless they have something that's uh, material and can be easily conveyed uh, through a press release, um, they shouldn't do a corporate you know events. Uh, I think um, you know I think certainly the revenue making uh, you know companies. 
uh, probably does make sense uh, to engage uh, in a dialogue uh, in the form of, uh, you know, a quarterly call. But it's such a drain on management's time, uh, on, you know, sell side and buy side analyst time. And it, you know, creates conditions for perhaps, uh, uh, you know, heightened expectations, you know, um, and, and when those expectations are not met or exceeded, um, you know, there could be a sell-off. So this is why I think sometimes management teams are surprised uh, to see, you know, after they put forth the effort uh, to do an R&D day, suddenly their stock, uh, you know, plummets. It's, it's because uh, there's a risk of uh, expectations for what is going to be conveyed at that event, uh, you know, gets away from them and they should, you know, control that uh, uh, much more. So I would say unless there is substantive um, you know, information to convey that can't be conveyed in the press release, they, they shouldn't try to do that. Yeah, so I, I totally agree with you. I mean, an R&D day is an enormous amount of work. And unless you have important data or an important strategic initiative um, or an important new direction and important new technology to lay out, doing a, a you know, a four-hour R&D day is not necessarily useful. By all means, don't feel obligated to do, to do them annually. It's a huge drain on our time, honestly. And if it's not really productive, uh, it will backfire at the end of the day. And also R&D days don't have to be four hours. You can also do a very productive two-hour webinar in four you know, half-hour modules that's going to be a lot more productive. Don't necessarily need to fluff it out to make it you know, lengthy to feel like you're to, to, to add substance, so to speak. You know, we, we get a lot of companies are, are, are asking about conference calls for earnings and they feel that if you do it once, you have to do it all the time. So I, I personally disagree. I, I do get it that if you start doing them one quarter and then five quarters later and then seven quarters later, maybe it's a little choppy. Um, I also feel that if you're in the very early stages of your commercial launch and you're going to be putting out 2 million in sales, going to 4 million in sales while you're waiting for formulary placement, I'm not sure personally that doing a conference call is necessarily that value-add while we all know we're waiting for things to happen in the future, sometimes putting out a press release and then calling the sell side and scheduling 15 minute times with and the buy side is a lot more productive than going through a long, you know, Q and you know, a long sort of prescription of remark. Um, so, and you also mentioned Alilam does a good job on, on earnings calls. Um, what, what do they do that's good as best practices? I mean, so they, they do a good job on earnings calls because, you know, they have an A team and they spend time on, and they're not the only ones, but they, you know, it's like in, uh, big picture comments, right? And then um, R&D, commercial, finance, but, but essentially all the large caps do this. And, and usually they have very good teams. But what I was uh, pointing towards is the quality of their R&D days which are not, I mean, by the way, they're like five hour affairs, right? <laughs> um, uh, but they do, they do follow that um, schema, if you will, of what have we achieved? What has been our, our hit rate, right? Um, where are we? And where are we going to be in a certain time horizon? And what they did that was really impressive, in my view, is they gave financial guidance, long-term guidance, even though there was a lot of uncertainty around you know, a crucial uh, cardiac TTR trial. And they basically made a commitment like, well, you know, you can you can play with the scale, right? You don't have to, people will take a rule and try to figure out like when are they going to break even? But they said like, we commit to breaking even and being profitable as opposed to other companies I know that sell billions in revenues and have been around for 20 years and are still not profitable. But so that message 
um, especially track record of delivering um, on commitments from prior years gives you a lot of credibility. Yeah. You know, another company to me really comes to mind is Amgen. Um, yes, I agree. Right. They have a great deck. They need to get through $6 billion in revenues every quarter to, to explain to us in, in multiple product lines. They have a terrific slide deck. It's very topical. Um, it is easy to understand. It gives you an immediate view as to what volume, what the trends were for each product line. They assume that we have a great baseline knowledge, so they don't re- we don't need to sit there for 40 minutes or prepared remarks rehashing what we know. It's not a good use of time. Like Anne mentioned, when you read the transcript, you don't really read 20 pages of prepared remarks, right? You want to go to the Q&A quickly. They're briefing to the point, and they leave a lot of time for Q&A, which is frankly what we all want. Um, I know companies sometimes feel like an earnings call is the only time company, the investor base is going to listen to them, but that's not what really happens in my view. What do you think, Isai? Like, how do you get to know a company? You know, my, my favorite way of getting to know uh, management teams is, you know, at uh, medical conferences and scientific forums, uh, you know, talking about sort of uh, uh, the space kind of generally. Uh, that's my favorite way uh, to do it. I certainly expect to, uh, you know, interact uh, in person uh, with management teams at least several times a year. It doesn't have to be, you know, once a month or every quarter. Uh, but, you know, for me, uh, it's a personal preference. I also like, uh, you know, some management teams, uh, once they have a, a press release uh, out or, you know, a call is finished, they can follow up uh, with some, uh, with an email that contextualizes things a little bit, uh, you know, offers up an opportunity to kind of connect with them. Um, uh, you know, I've seen various practices. I, you know, I, I, I really appreciate the, the opportunity to interact like that. Yeah, th- those emails, that's a great point. Those emails are unbelievably useful. Hey, FYI, bam, 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 bam. You know, when you don't abuse it, it's extremely, extremely useful and companies don't. You know, one of the things that when we were on the other side and interacting with a lot of IR companies, and it's something that we all know also from this side, you know, there's a lot of, at times, a view within companies that their stock is weak because, quote unquote, Wall Street's not getting it. And then they spend a lot of time and a lot of IR resources with their external, you know, IR firms trying to figure out how do we get Wall Street to get it. So let me ask you, do you're seeing a company, their stock is under has been under pressure for a long time. They feel like Wall Street's not getting it. How often is Wall Street quote unquote not getting it in your view? Or is there another reason why the stock is usually down? Here's the issue, right? Like there there are way there are so many publicly traded companies in in this space that um it is true, right? Like we we have a process and we try to skim through stuff and try to see what is worth doing uh, an additional layer of, of work. Um, so it, it so it's true that some things can fall uh, under the radar screen. However, companies should not assume that Wall Street uh, is missing their story as kind of the default explanation. And the reason why I'm saying that is because their audience is an army, like literally a huge army of highly sophisticated, hungry people looking for the next pharmacyclics, Regeneron or Alexion, right? And so a hidden gem will ultimately be discovered. So I, 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 I think that this assumption that Wall Street is missing something after you know many years in the market is, um, is probably misguided, right? I mean, if, if a company keeps being quote unquote missed, um, I would have encouraged these companies to ask themselves, is there something with respect to execution and communication? And maybe, you know, you know these companies, they should reach out every time they do a meeting, 
with a, uh, with a buy-sider or a sell-sider, ask at the end of the meeting for candid feedback. Is it, you know, do you like the end market? Do you think there's enough data that, you know, public investors will include finance people like me or science people like Isai will understand the story or not? Or is there an issue with execution or just the stage we're at, right? But I think this, if companies spend years saying that Wall Street is missing them, I think the, the my, my guess is that in most of the cases, it's, a, it's an issue of communication slash execution. You know, it's, it's a familiar theme, I think, uh, uh, particularly for early stage development, you know, stage companies. Uh, many of them have gone public uh, so early, you know, years away from any clinical data, uh, maybe years away from the clinic, you know, um, and they are so uh, troubled by the fact that they're being ignored. Um, and they're being ignored because, in, in, you know, there's lots of opportunities to invest in many different things. And we have to kind of prioritize, you know, why do we need to own it right now? That's a question I think they need to think about. Uh, and yes, capital markets have been uh, extraordinarily permissive, I would say, in the last few years. Uh, but, you know, that environment has changed. Um, so um, I think it's, it, it shouldn't be a surprise uh, that people are focused on catalyst, on the right value inflection. And starting a clinical trial is not it. Clinical data is it, you know. Um, so I think, um, you know, uh, it's also kind of pace to um, cultivate the investor base that's right for the company. And it's an incredibly difficult thing to get right. You know, many people try um, and there's all sorts of you know, bad assumptions that they make, you know, about long only funds versus hedge funds uh, and everything in between. Um, uh, you know, but I do think being thoughtful about your your uh, investor base, uh, you know, makes sense. And, you know, there are lots of venture funds who, you know, raise capital to do public investing. They have very long term horizons. Uh, they can get into, uh, you know, stories that are dislocated without any near term or even medium term, uh, you know, uh, news flow. Actually, one thing I'll pick up on that you just said, and I think it's absolutely valid, uh, is I in a big factor is that, um, you know, the XB, I mean, the, the market's been so treacherous, right? Like you need to manage your books very tightly, especially on the long short side. And so I agree, like I remember like back when I was at Visium, we were happy to sit something for two years before a clinical readout. Now books have to be managed so tightly. It's like, I'm not going to sit on dead money for a couple of years, even if I like the idea, even if I like the management, you know, like I need to get paid now. Right. And so I think it's making it much, much harder for these companies to get attention. That was a great point you raised. Yeah. And and I got to tell you, so there's two points that really resonate with me that, that you just mentioned. And, you know, when I was in a company, I kept on, you know, one of the, the constant sayings that I would tell people is we don't get rewarded for going to work. We get rewarded for delivering results. That's a very, very big difference in the way Wall Street looks at the world and looks at pro progress versus what companies are doing. Because to them, is look, we filed the IND or we started our phase two study. We're expecting you to do that. We gave you capital with the understanding that you can do that. It's a question, can you deliver positive phase two data? That's really the difference. You know, one of the things you were both talking about how it is hard for companies to get attention and companies, to a certain degree, a lot of times when they struggle, they want to do more. They, they call for advice and their people call for advice. How can they do more? And I don't know that doing more is the right answer. I would say absolutely do more in delivering value, in creating a medicine, delivering positive results. But spending more time with Wall Street when there's big gaps in your data set or you're too early and you're in limbo, 
is not necessarily going to help your stock. And it's probably going to detract, distract you a little bit from doing your job, you know, within the company. They're also really trying to, I would say, overcrowd prime time. So a, a lot of times we have during a big competing conference, you know, at the prime time slot, 8 a.m. on Tuesday, a small 180 million market cap, 320, want to do an analyst event right on top of what Amgen is releasing their phase three, God knows what data, you know, it's not a good use of time. And when there's too many events going on to your point, it thins all of Wall Street. So when a company actually does have anything to say, no one's there to listen because they're too distracted looking at a hundred press releases. So one of the, the questions that I have to you is what's the best way to get your attention? Um, and when maybe Isa, let's start with you on that one. Well, I mean, at, the, at these broker conferences, uh, it's a perfect time, you know, to, uh, uh, you know, to get attention. Uh, there, there are lots of uh, opportunities to uh, schedule times on the non-deal roadshow, uh, you know, and, and uh, speak with us. Um, it, it's a delight to meet companies, uh, as I've said, at different, you know, medical and, and scientific forums, because uh, we do attend most of them. Um, so that's, you know, uh, always, you know, a, a good idea. If they have a uh, you know, uh, connections to me through their board members or, you know, management team members. Uh, uh, those are also, you know, uh, uh, easy to uh, uh, kind of react to. Um, but there are so many companies uh, and there's so few of us. And, and uh, uh, you know, it, it's really it's really tough to fill up your schedule with, with uh, you know, companies that don't have anything near term uh, that you absolutely have to kind of react to. Yeah, I mean, I think this... Um... This concept of talking to investors around medical meetings and data presentation is, I think it works really well um, because everybody is in the same place, right? Covering the same topic. I think it works really well. Um, okay, terrific. The, the one other element that that I, you know, wanted to throw out and, and you, you probably will know what I'm talking about, you know, as we all know, companies need to close the quarter, you know, 45 days, you know, after the, uh, the, the quarter ends. And so... You know, and I remember being a CFO, the finance team wants to, you know, release the queue on that Thursday, the last Thursday. Well, if you notice, there's, um, I think I counted recently, there were 35 earnings at Cowan on our biotech team that Thursday. And I think it was, there, there must have been like 10 conference calls after the close. You can imagine the ability to, uh, for anybody to pay attention is non-existent at that point. So, you know, as you think about setting up your, your landscape, zoom out a little bit and think about what else is going on in the industry because each company, you know, is a part of, uh, you know, a broader ecosystem and then try to plan to, to your point when people have time. And, you know, um, in other words, don't release the phase two data, um, you know, in the middle of the late breakers at ASCO, you know, as an example, right? If you're not, you know, a late breaker company at ASCO. If, if I could add to this, you know, I've seen some uh, really innovative ways of, kind of releasing data uh, that I personally appreciate, especially, you know, uh, when I'm a shareholder. You know, I've seen companies uh, embargo, uh, you know, sell-side analysts uh, and actually take them through uh, the data. Uh, so they're prepared, you know, uh, for when they actually release it. And, you know, uh, sell-side analysts could be uh, companies, you know, best friend in terms of uh, promulgating the, the message, clarifying whatever is opaque, uh, things like that. So I've seen uh, some companies do that. I don't think it's a standard, uh, you know, thing, uh, but you only get one chance to present the data um, and, uh, you know, uh, and, and contextualize it, uh, you know, appropriately. So I think it pays to, you know, be prepared and, and uh, make the most of it. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I've definitely seen an uptick in that. Uh, Isai, I agree with you. The first time it happened, it was a little jarring. I was like, oh boy, here we go. It was my top pick. They're bringing me over the wall, you know, 20 hours ahead of time. This is going to be a slow train wreck. It was actually a pleasant surprise. It was actually positive. So, you know, it, it really works and it lets you uh, lets you prep. A lot of times, I'm sure you're in meetings and the meetings goes extremely well for whatever reason. Some meetings are, don't go very well. And so I wanted to ask each one of you, what do you, what sort of resonates with you when you're in a meeting with a management team and what sort of really doesn't work for you? And maybe to, to I can tell you the first thing I look for when, when meeting with a company, you know, now increasingly, you know, in the same room is when the CEO brings a team and lets them talk. And it's not a one person, man or woman CEO running the show, answering all questions. Because I want to see whether they're comfortable with them, how capable they are. And I want to read the room too when they answer questions. What what works for you? What do you want to see in meetings? And maybe let's start with you. I mean, what I want to see again, it's, you know, this notion of commitment and delivering on what you've promised, right? And if something goes wrong, uh, I want to see a plan B being articulated right away, right? Because I think a lot of companies don't have a plan B. A lot of companies have um, like so much, you know, and, and it's good, right? Like they have so much faith in what they're doing. They don't have a plan B and then something blows up the next day they're in your office and, and you know, like it hasn't been thought through, right? So I always encourage companies to, to think about that. I mean, the other thing is I love, you know, like the best, the, the best companies, right? And it's more consistent in large cap land than in small cap land is, you know, where you have like the A team across the board, right? Like the head of R&D is amazing. The CFO is amazing. The CEO is, is, is good. Um, uh, and, and it's, it's harder to see. And it, I mean, I'm sorry, it's less consistent, you know, in, in smaller caps. Um, and, uh, you know, what I appreciate also is companies that ask for feedback, um, at the end of a meeting or after the meeting, you know, sometimes at, you know who's really good at this is Amgen, right? By the way, they ask for feedback constantly. Um, and, and I think it's very good practice. Is so they they will ask for feedback and we'll give them candid feedback. Um, and sometimes sometimes you actually can't do that in a meeting, and then you know you need to have follow-up conversations when you think that something could have been improved because otherwise the meeting would have been adversarial. But again, it's like consistency, consistency of management and being prepared as we are as investors, right? Because we, we look at alternative scenarios, we put probabilities on them. When something goes wrong, like showing that you had a plan B is really important in terms of your credibility. Yeah, absolutely. Isai, what about you? Well, it's, it's uh, a little annoying when you're meeting with a, a company uh, that is going you know, through uh, uh, clinical development and uh, the only person you get is the CFO who is not able to answer questions. You know, I would say don't, conduct those kind of uh, meetings. Don't, don't uh, schedule those kind of meetings, you know, when you know investors are going to be focused on the particulars of the trial, they're going to want to understand, you know, uh, you know how, how you stratified, how you powered the trial. You want to go through all these uh, questions. And when you, it's a complete waste of your time and you're getting nothing uh, in return, uh, that's, uh, you know, annoying. And that's happened, uh, uh, you know, several times to me. 
Uh, I would also say when when um, you know companies release uh, you know do a press release and they said you know we've we've conducted uh, you know a clinical trial and it was a success and when they don't provide the details that's also uh, you know very uh, annoying. Um, I think uh, especially if you're a shareholder uh, and there may not even be anything wrong with it, but the fact that they kind of overlooked to provide the the transparency that's needed, you know, and uh, folks are you know shorting the stock. Uh, as a shareholder, you know, doesn't doesn't feel good. Yeah, so I I, uh, I completely agree with you, Isai. I mean, if even the CEO, in our view, ne- needs to be aware in detail about whether it's a technology company, what's the strength and weaknesses in the comp- in the competitive landscape. Um, if it's a clinical company, the ins and outs of the clinical study and competition. You know, that's critical because a lot of times we, we want to understand that they have a real pulse on not just how good their data is, but what's going on broadly, you know, that there's not going to be, they're not going to be supplanted quickly. And secondly, just the one thing I highly recommend companies not to do, and we get that there's a lot of noise and from all in the outside world, stick to your data when you talk about it, have a good sense and you can talk about the competition, but there's no need to put the competition down. If you have great data, just show us your great data answer questions about what the competition's doing, you don't need to knock them down. That's usually a, a, a red flag when we start seeing kind of bad mouthing the competition. I want to talk about what's the difference between a good IR person and a great IR person? And, and, that, that, and when do you decide that, yep, you're, you want to call and speak to the IR person as opposed to calling the IR person so you can get a meeting with the CEO or CMO, et cetera? Yeah, when when they can you know facilitate uh, your learning what you're you know after uh, it's it's very very helpful you know uh, I think a lot of uh, larger cap companies are quite good they have uh, you know uh, larger teams that are able to do it with small cap uh, you know companies I actually want to hear from the CEO you know I I don't feel uh, comfortable uh, meeting with an IR person of a development stage company the CEO should be there you know and I think many many investors. Uh, feel that way. And what about you? For me, the, the, the greatest IR professionals are those who deeply understand the company from a valuation standpoint, right? So Justin Hoiko at, at uh, Regeneron did an amazing job, um, essentially telling the story, right? Because like the story was very highly eccentric and, and there were new things emerging like the COVID story, right? And um, and and later on oncology and I think he knew it exceptionally exceptionally well knew had the story uh, so th- there are there are a few people like that um, in IR positions you know Levine at Lugdar at Moderna knows knows the story inside and out right I mean she's to me she's like C-suite level right no no question whatsoever she's of the highest caliber and IR you know like, otherwise like good good IR should be a conduit like a two-way conduit uh, between investors and management, right? Like relay feedback from investors to management. So they need to have these good relationships so that there's actually a dialogue as opposed to like spitting back what has been said in the press release and, and work closely with management so they can really understand the company at the deepest deepest strategic and financial level and convey this, the story rather than rehashed uh, pieces from press releases. Um, and, and good IR people will also say, nudge people and say, hey, maybe you should take a look at this program because we think it's it could be important. And, and again, like Justin could do that. You know, Lavina can do that. A few people can do that. Um, you know, Amgen is very good at this. I have an amazing IR team. But the worst, you know, the, the, the where IR is not useful to me is when the, the only thing I get from them is 
what we have said is, right, and then they read to you a, uh, the quote from a transcript that I've evidently read. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, and a good IR person has resources at their fingertips to point you to. They, they, they understand the program, they understand the gap, they understand the areas that are going to make or break the program, and they have data. They can send you references. They can, they can, they can help you advance your knowledge base. And they can help fill the gaps for you, which is extremely useful. They're, they really help expand the message as opposed to contain the message to your point, Dan, right? Yes, absolutely. Can we talk about setting expectations? It, it's really an art and, and not a science. And it, it really requires a certain level of commitment, intuitiveness, patience, dedication to stick to and end a long-term vision that some CEOs really have and some CEOs don't. Uh, and it's really entwined in personality and skill set, right? Everybody's made up of certain strengths and certain areas that are just a little harder. And there's a lot of amazing CEOs who um, just get overly excited. Um, they don't stick to the script, but I think they're, they're, they're not necessarily realizing how when you talk what people hear and how that changes then shifts in terms of building expectations over time. And when you do that too early, how that can amplify into the data. And they're not willing to be patient and hold the horses back from the race. They want to, you know, sprint the whole time. Can you talk about what, so what does that mean for Wall Street? Like, you know, maybe give some advice, Isai, let's start with you. I think, you know, particularly for uh, newly, you know, public companies, uh, they are so naive to, you know, uh, that, you know, being a core, you know, skill, setting expectations. And, and they're so uh, motivated to be liked, you know, uh, to uh, say the right thing to investors. You know, you really do have to kind of step back and be uh, more of an adult about it uh, and refrain from sort of this uh, gratification of kind of, uh, you know, high-fiving with, with investors and whatever, um, because it will, it will hurt the, uh, you know, the company. Um, I think it's, you know, in markets like this, you you get uh, rewarded for exceeding expectations, not meeting expectations. You know, so I, I think it's important to uh, uh, you know set the context uh, in a way that you know you can exceed expectations. You know, in a realistic way, and, and certainly inappropriate to uh, uh, you know put out uh, expectations that you can't uh, you know meet. Um, so it, it's it's a, it's a tough one because uh, many of these uh, public company CEOs uh, are public company CEOs for the first time, um, and uh, it's a different world uh, in the private world and, and with venture investors who uh, you know are, are it, it just you know it, it's just a, a, a skill that uh, they have to kind of develop. I've seen some companies do um, you know uh, tremendously well. With expectations management, I, I recall Endosite. Uh, you know, Mike Sherman years ago. Uh, you know, I was a top shareholder, and uh, uh, you know, even I was surprised about the FDA feedback. Uh, I was certainly surprised about the Novartis acquisition. You know, they've been at it, you know, a long time with strategic discussions. But my point is, you know, uh, that's an example of a, of a team that you know knew how to handle expectations and never get ahead of themselves. And that's a very important, it's, it's half the, the battle, you know, uh, is, is uh, uh, exceeding uh, expectations that you set. And what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I mean, um, uh, I see, you know, repeatedly R&D days that 
uh, you know, the stock kind of like does well into the R&D day and then it collapsed, right? Because people somehow are expecting a big reveal. And so it's IR's job to kind of, you know, um, manage expectations, you know, realistically around what's going to be presented, right? Or going into a medical meeting, we're going to get, oh, our first data of this, you know, dose escalation trial in cancer. And it turns out that, you know, the therapeutic dose was only the last three patients. And there are uh, the, the, there are two responses out of three. And they say, well, it's a 67% response rate. And then boom, your stock craters. Especially because, I mean, the trading dynamics are also difficult in this market in that, you know, people go long into the quote unquote catalyst and then they exit, right? And so you want to smooth your stock as much as possible. You don't want to let expectations build into, you know, marginal data sets, into R&D days, unless you're really confident that it's going to be game changing, right? Uh, so that's expectations management. So I think the expectations management side of IR job, uh, you know, IR as a position is crucially important, right? Crucially important. And it, it also goes to their communication with the sell side where they should, you know, the best way to communicate with Wall Street is to call up your analysts, right? At Cowan, Goldman Sachs, and JP Morgan, because the message will be disseminated. And again, you have to be careful with messaging, right? With SEC rules, but there are, as you said, it's an art more than a science, but I mean, companies would save themselves so much anxiety and hours of, you know, post blow up meetings if this expectations management work were done upstream. Well, let's get to my favorite part of um, each podcast where we ask you a little personal touch and humor about, uh, you know, what makes you who you are and usually things that, you know, most people who probably know you professionally might not know about you. So maybe, Anne, let's start with you. What was your first job ever? And I'm, I'm not talking about sort of first job after college or after, you know, MBA school. Um, what was your first job? What did you like about it? And what did you hate about it? So sorry, my first job, I mean, my first internship, my first or more, my first like full-time job. Yeah, my first full-time job. It might be. Oh, yeah. yeah. You oh, know, God. Goat so, herding. Yes, um, I was, uh, I was, in, I, you know, I, I, my first job was at J.P. Morgan as an analyst in the, um, you know, analyst uh, training program. And, and I was based in London and uh, I, I really took the path, path of most resistance because I remember I, we had to fill time sheets and there were a number of weeks where and it was never below 100 hours, but sometimes it's 120. And I have no idea how, ma- how I made it through it, <laughs> but you know, somehow I did. I think, you know, it was a great job because it's very intensive, rigorous training, but you need to, I, so you learn a lot, right? Um, your salary on an hourly basis is terrible, but you really learn a lot, right? It really rounds you up and it, 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 it makes you tough. I did it for far too long is what I will say. <laughs> One or two years would have been enough. Isai, what about you? Well, you know, my first job uh, was when I was 12. Uh, you know, we left Russia, uh, Soviet Russia um, as, as refugees. And we were in Italy uh, for almost a year before we came to the U.S. Um, so my first job was uh, as a squeegee kid, you know, window washer. Uh, I would stand uh, on the on the corner, you know, um, uh, and and uh, uh, basically, you know, wash, uh, uh, you know, the, the windows, even though some of the drivers wanted it and some some did not. Uh, you know, it was a bit humiliating, but I had to do, you know, what I needed to do, um, and uh, you know, just learn to kind of keep going. The other thing I did was uh, uh, fixing up bikes and selling them to other Russian immigrants who were in the same kind of situation. 
It's like it's like buying and sell buying stocks. You're just fixing bikes and selling them. That's right. I had to hustle, you know. So not some things don't change. Is that you? You came a long way, but I have to say I have a lot of respect for what you just said. That's like wow. <laughs> yeah, that's my, amazing. My, it's amazing. Yeah, my first job in high school when I was 14, 15 years old was fixing pool cleaners or called aquabots. Those uh, aquabots that you put in the pool, those electric pool cleaners, I would do that in the summers before, you know, and that's how I would make pocket money. And then my second job was at Joe's Pizza. And that's how I bought my first stereo. I was, I think, 16. And I still call my wife all the time and say, Joe's Pizza? Like, uh, <laughs> it's a funny joke. Um, would you ever skydive or have you ever skydive, Isai? I haven't. Uh, uh, no way, you know. Uh, I'm a biotech <laughs> investor, but not that much of a thrill sticker. Um, you know, I have two kids. Uh, I don't even fly, you know, prop planes. So it's a no for me. Yeah. And what about you? Yeah, I mean, I thought the question, you know, was basically uh, an invitation. So, yeah, absolutely. No, I have no desire for a near-death experience. Uh, <laughs> my life is stressful as it is staring at my screen. And I do have two kids and, and parents and a husband. So, no, I have no, no desire for either a near-death experience or, or, in fact, a premature end to my life. Yeah, I, I, same with me. Are you kidding me? Like, if I paid to get on the plane, presumably that fare included landing, and other people jump, and I'm going to drink all the Diet Cokes that there are left behind. I'm not jumping off a plane. It's not going to happen. Well, great, Eastine, and so great to see you as always. Thank you so much. This was really great. I think it's going to help a lot of people, hopefully. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.